Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The Pentagon has said that climate change poses immediate risks to our national security. U.S. intelligence and security leaders predict that resource scarcity will be our next big threat. The World Wildlife Fund's new initiative, In Pursuit of Prosperity, seeks to make sustainability a core component of U.S. foreign policy. WWF says that scarcities in one country can spill over into relations with neighboring countries as governments try to access natural resources such as timber, water, and energy through legal and illegal means. Tensions among neighbors ranging from the U.S.-Mexico border to India and Pakistan are on the rise. Another example of effects, California is currently experiencing one of the most severe droughts in over a century. The result is higher food prices and declining water stocks. And according to the World Wildlife Fund... Equal, safe, and responsible distribution of natural resources can reduce worldwide conflicts, among other good effects. And uh, so they've uh, initiated the In Pursuit of Prosperity initiative. Uh, So our guest for today is David Reed, Senior Policy Advisor with the World Wildlife Fund. He is author of In Pursuit of Prosperity, this book that's coming out. David Reed, welcome to the program. Oh, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for joining us. Before we launch in here, I want to uh, get into some of the case studies. Very interesting, and you're you're arguing for a, a marrying up a, a more concerted effort to marry up sustainability, concerned about climate change with foreign policy. You have an interesting background: undergraduate degree, political science, PhD in developmental economics. Twenty nine years after that, and in between, conservation work. And that's all culminated it's, it's, in this effort. It's certainly take me all over the world, and it's been an incredible journey so far. Uh, so as a young man, uh, you, you went to Peru and did some work there, reconstructing I, dams and, and such. I, I did. And, and in fact, it was when I was uh, first, my first professional job was on what's called the Altiplano. That's the high plain in Peru, right around Lake Titicaca. It's about... Uh, uh, 12,000 feet above sea level, and it was really my first exposure and what really motivated me to get into this issue. You know, I, this is a windswept plain with the uh, Quechua and the Amada Indians. They've been there for centuries and centuries. And what struck me first was that there were no trees. And so I started figuring out, asking, what, what, what's the cause of this? And it turns out that the Spaniards three, four hundred years earlier, had cut down a lot of the trees in order to provide timbers for the silver mines in Potosi, Bolivia. And in fact, they just never had uh, programs to help redevelop the forest stock on the, on the Altiplano. So that was one of the first um, activities we involved in, was, was developing a reforestation program um, on, on the Altiplano. But then, and living in the communities, in right on Lake Titicaca, it, it became apparent that there was another kind of scarcity, and that scarcity was having access to fertile lands, because during the 1930s, uh, a lot of the very powerful landlords had driven the small Indian communities off of these, these what they call haciendas, these, these immense uh, stretches of, uh, of um, agricultural lands and pushed them to the least productive areas in the in in the altiplano and so they said we need to help get back these lands to to regain control so actually became involved in in working with them to help uh, take over the lands that had been confiscated from them you know many many years before and so i saw firsthand how lack of access 
through some of these very basic resources really determines the fate, the, the, the income, and the well-being of communities in that, in that part of the world. And so that was my first engagement, my first motivation. Uh, let me quote you here. This is on the, the website for World Wildlife Fund. Uh, you say, the question is not whether resource scarcity in other parts of the world will affect U.S. prosperity and national security, but rather when and how. Uh, so you've been you've been talking about uh, internal matters in Peru that uh, you got interested in. Uh, you're saying that we need to be uh, involved in this as a matter of foreign policy. I think a really good example is what is happening today in the Middle East. You know, actually, the, the, there's, a, there's a civil war going on in Syria that was caused by the deepest and drought that that country has experienced in over a thousand years. And what happened was that over one million families left their countryside farms, moved to the cities because they had no water. That drought just took away all their opportunity to sustain their livelihoods. Well, moved to the cities, and there's no water there. And in addition to which, there really were no job opportunities. And when you combine that fact with the reality that the Middle East has the highest growth population growth rates in the world, uh, you have a very volatile situation. And so it's not hard to understand how the ISIS, the Islamic State, then with its promises of a new social order, with opportunities, with jobs, were, it was really is able to capture the imagination and the hopes of this young population. And that is, to a large extent, I think, what explains uh, what we are facing in that part of the world. And so, the, as we've seen and, and know from public debates and so forth, ISIS and what's going on in the Middle East is a direct threat, direct challenge, if you will, to our interest in the region and really has, has involved us in very direct ways. So I think that's, that's just one example. And indeed, the U.S. will be involved, as the military says, kinetically. We are going to be, uh, we are actually involved in a military response there. But it's my absolute certainty that we will not find a stable, secure, peaceful region until those societies address the underlying issues of water and find out and de develop ways of managing that resource across borders, but also within their own countries. I think that's just one example of, of the immediate impacts on, on our foreign policy. So let's take that example. That aspect of it, you don't, you don't hear about a lot, right? Um, and, and you really don't. It's so true. And so how would you, how would you suggest that it, it, foreign policy, how would foreign policy move? What, what, would you, what would be your recommendations, given that, you know, you, you educate um, you know, foreign policy, um, those at the State Department and the, and the Pentagon, they're, they're probably already aware of this. Um, how, how would you move the needle on that? What, what would you, we do differently, given that understanding? Well, yeah, no, it, it, it's a good question. It's a hard question, and I do obviously do not have a simple answer. But let me first say that one of the things that has struck me most in this uh, great adventure that we have been involved in, in Pursuit of Prosperity, is how 
thoroughly engaged understanding and, in fact, ahead of the curve, our intelligence and our security communities are. They have done absolutely brilliant analysis. They understand what these challenges are. They've presented it to the public in testimony uh, on Capitol Hill and, and try to translate that into operational terms. We need to understand that the intelligence community sort of, there's this red line, and all they can do is provide good analysis. They are not allowed to make policy recommendations and say, here's the path to follow. They can just provide that analysis. So on one hand, you have this part of our government that is so right on target, and then other parts of the government that are not able to respond to you know, those new challenges very fully. For example, the military, while understanding these challenges and the origins, are not geared and oriented to addressing the underlying issues. They, they you know, the last thing the, the, the admirals and the, and the generals want is to commit troops uh, on the ground. They have absolutely no interest in that. And yet they are organized in such a way that they cannot address these underlying issues. They will say to us, as they have many times, we need to strengthen our diplomatic and our development assistance to these countries that are threatened and, and beset by resource scarcity. And that really is what will keep us from having to be involved, be involved kinetically, as they like to say. And I, so I think that's, that's really um, a key f- function here. I think it's also important to say that our our government is is paralyzed in certain ways. It is unable to make decisive moves, decisions to address some of these underlying issues, and these are these are long-standing issues. So you do find U.S. Agency for International Development. You do find the Millennium Challenge Corporation. These are part of our overseas development assistance programs. They are looking at them, but certainly not at the scale, not at the level, and not with the sophistication that is needed to, as the generals asked for, to help prevent us from becoming involved militarily. So to to reach your goals, the World Wildlife Fund, and uh, and uh, try to make sustainability, environmental sustainability, a central tenet of U.S. foreign policy, you're going to have to change some minds, aren't you? This uh, climate change and environmental issues have become heavily politicized. And uh, that I, I could see, uh, you know, some conservatives looking at this with a jaundiced eye. Why are we, you know, seeing this as a diversion, not a central tenet? Well, that, that, that certainly is the case. I, I, I think that it's really important to recognize, however, that resource scarcities have existed for many, many years, many decades, and they, they predate in many ways the issue of climate change and the impacts of climate change. These scarcities arise from, I'd say, three basic uh, sources. The first is uh, demographic change. Uh, the, the global population is growing and it's changing. In some places it's very young, in other places very old, but it's also much more urbanized, and the demands on resources are changing. The second main driver is the fact that um, our economy is growing, and as these economies become greater, richer, there, there are more demands placed on water and forests and soil, and that is having a direct effect. And the third, and oftentimes the most important uh, problem here is that the governments 
policies and institutions are not addressing these issues in long-term sustainable ways. And in fact, they often uh, deliberately accelerate the drawdown of forests or uh, water and productive soils in order to meet, let's say, short-term needs of those societies. And so you have, um, just say, India that's subsidizing uh, fuel to pump water out of the ground when, in fact, the water table is falling so quickly and so fast that they're literally running out of water. That's what you call a policy and an institutional failure. And those failures are profound and they're enduring. Um, so you have those three drivers, demographics, economic, and policy failures. And then on top of that, you add the climate change layer that then is an accelerant and a multiplier. So I, I think for those people who don't want to recognize that um, the climate change is a major problem, these problems exist, and these problems existed in, just say, in, in, in Texas in the 1950s, uh, actually the severest drought in that state's history. And now we're talking about the mega droughts of, you know, of 2050. Um, this, these are, problems originate before climate set in, but now they're being exacerbated. And unfortunately, we will have no choice but to respond to those new, new conditions. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more with uh, David Reed, who's Senior Policy Analyst with the World Wildlife Fund. They have launched a new initiative. It's called In Pursuit of Prosperity. And uh, one of the goals is uh, they're seeking to make sustainability a core component of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, They're saying, uh, David Reed is saying, that uh, scarcities, resource scarcities in one country can spill over into relations with neighboring countries and uh, he's saying the question is not whether resource scarcity in other parts of the world will affect U.S. prosperity and national security, but rather when and how. Following the break, uh, I want to get into uh, one of your case studies, uh, David Reed, uh, maybe a little in depth. Uh, that is uh, U.S.-Mexico uh, relations and, and, and the border there and uh, the effects of the drought following the break. On the next Humankind, comedian and stress management teacher Loretta LaRoche, the wacky lady on public television specials who finds ways to laugh through life's tribulations. Also, we visit with Francis Moore LaPay, author of the classic book Diet for a Small Planet. Next time on Humankind. Thursday night at 8.30 and continued Friday night at 8.30 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Best Western Antlers, 423 West Main Street in Vernal, featuring a breakfast buffet, outdoor heated swimming pool, fitness center, guest laundry, Wi-Fi, business services, and a shuttle to the Vernal Airport. Information at bestwestern.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about the intersection of sustainability and climate change and the relations between countries. In Pursuit of Prosperity is a new initiative from the World Wildlife Fund. It seeks to make sustainability a core component of U.S. foreign policy. And David Reed, my guest for the hour, uh, who is senior policy analyst with the World Wildlife Fund, says the question is not whether resource scarcity in other parts of the world will affect U.S. prosperity and national security, but rather when and how. He gets on to uh, say, in an equal measure, how will the U.S. government and our economy respond to the tenant social unrest and economic disruption? 
Before we get into talking about U.S. and Mexico relations and, and the border region and the effects of resource scarcity, uh, I noticed, uh, David Reed, that uh, in, in a video presentation, you expressed some surprise. Uh, someone asked you, what's your biggest surprise with this? And, and you said, uh, in fact, the Pentagon has said that climate change is an immediate risk to national security. The military is on board and they're planning with this. Uh, that surprises me as well. And I, I don't know what that maybe says more about us than, than them. No, I, I, I think that um, the, the preface to the book, the forward to the book, was written by Admiral Mike Mullen, who was the 17th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He wrote the preface to the book, not out of whim, but because he and his colleagues have been deeply involved in analyzing and trying to understand the potential impacts of resource scarcities on the U.S. military. And they've been doing this for many years. So that's been part of my great discovery to understand the depths, the breadths of the engagement and the understanding that our security forces have of these issues. And so, yes, it is surprising, but, you know, the, the fact is that Norfolk News and is going to be flooded, and so many of the bases that they, the, the Navy has around the world are under direct threat from rising sea level. And so they are already planning. They have very strong forward planning capacity, and this is just part of their preparing for this. So um, I, I, if you look at the Air Force, the Army, and the um, Navy, it is clearly the Navy that over the past decade has been in the forefront of this analytical work and the preparatory work for it. Um, again, the question is how to translate that preparation and that understanding out into broader U.S. foreign policy. Uh, and there has not been that much synergy between the Department of Defense and other parts of our, say, development system, State Department, and, of course, some very real limitations in influencing the legislative agenda. Again, before we get into the U.S.-Mexico, uh, I'm interested in the subtitle of your book. It's In Pursuit of Prosperity, the title of the subtitle, U.S. Foreign Policy in an Era of Natural Resource Scarcity. So we're, we're in an era of natural resource scarcity. That's going to continue? It's, it's going to continue for quite a while. Um, it is going to continue certainly in ways that we do not anticipate and, and understand. And what we have done in the book is to look at how scarcity is influencing and will likely influence U.S. interests around the world. So we looked at uh, water issues in China. We looked at um, food needs in China. We looked at what's happening in India and Brazil, the Congo, East Africa, and drew from those case studies a series of conclusions that, that tell us Yes, scarcities are going to be around for a very long time. They're likely to get worse. They are going to be accelerated by climate impacts and that we face some hard decisions and that the best decision that we can make is to try to start addressing them now while we still have the opportunity rather than waiting till later. We can begin now by strengthening our development assistance, our technical cooperation, working with our corporations, U.S.-based corporations, and making sure that they are developing sustainable supply chains around the world. So we're in for a long haul here, and we are facing a context in which 
we, we we're, we're going to be having to, to balance these trade-offs. We, we're not going to be able to have economic outcomes that we want and social outcomes and environmental protections. There are going to be some really difficult decisions. And what we are trying to do and through the book is to say we, begin, we must begin to prepare for those trade-offs, for making those hard decisions. And the key component in making those kinds of decisions is an informed, educated, and actively involved citizenry. And that's whether you're conservative, whether you're progressive, whether you're Republican, Democrat in this country and around the world, whatever position you have in those societies, it is critical to have the support of the local communities because that's where the answers will lie almost all the time. If you just joined us, we're talking with David Reed, who's Senior Policy Advisor at the World Wildlife Fund, and he's uh, author of a new book. Uh, it's, it's coming out. It's called In Pursuit of uh, Prosperity. That's the title of a new initiative from the World Wildlife Fund, and uh, they're seeking to make sustainability a core component of U.S. foreign policy. You can join us here. We'd love to hear what you think at 1-800-826-1495. That's toll-free. Anywhere you're listening, 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. So let's uh, jump into, you have uh, several case studies. One of them is uh, U.S. and Mexico uh, and water. And uh, this is something we well understand here in Utah and other dry western states. Utah's uh, number two driest in, in the nation. Um, and battles over water, state to state and within in the state. Uh, talk a little bit uh, about uh, this case study, U.S. And, and Mexico relations and, and water. I'm going to give you a, a strange answer by beginning by, by referencing the case studies that we did in East Africa, in China, Amazon, and India. And I'm going to bring us right back to Mexico-U.S. relationships. What is so phenomenal about our trans-border relationship with Mexico is that we have developed a series of water management agreements that have endured now for over a century. They've matured, they've been adjusted, uh, they've changed in so many ways to meet new demands. And every time we look at these country governments come to us and say, well, how can we, what can we do in, the, in Pakistan-India conflict? And we, we consistently say there's a very, very good model. And that is that set of agreements that we have developed with our southern neighbor over the course of a decade. So I, I just use that as a point of reference. The challenges that we face are real and they're severe. They're going to get worse. But let's not lose sight of the fact we have an extraordinary experience in, in part of our country that we believe must be shared with other parts of the world. Now, the big challenge that I think we face in our relationship with Mexico is that all of the water agreements so far are about surface water. And as you know, we have been drawing down the, the, the groundwater. We've used up all, all the surface water is subscribed, uh, whether it's the Pecos, whether it's the Colorado. Um, Rio Grande, the, 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 the water is subscribed, and, it's, and it's in some places just simply disappears because of that subscription, the use, the drawdown of water. But what then counties and cities and states have been doing is tapping into the groundwater and depleting, drawing down the water in the aquifers. 
And to date, we do not have the robust agreements on how to manage that groundwater, how to manage broader um, the watershed level management of water, and the cuts across the two countries. And that's the big challenge that we are going to face. And the, 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 what is recommended is that the way to do that is start on a limited number of watersheds or critical ones, get, as we have in the past, get communities on both sides of the border to bring forward representatives to talk about the problems, get the kind of analysis and information we need, and then slowly mature water-sharing agreements. Now, I, I, I want to go back to sort of the starting point of, of, this, of your question. Water agreements are difficult, and water agreements are usually forged in a context of power. And it's very often, almost invariably, that the most powerful country in a transnational water agreement actually determine and dictate the terms of that agreement. And certainly that is the case in, let's say, in Israel and Palestine. That is the case with Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. Uh, that is the case with Egypt and Somalia, for instance. And to a large extent, that has been the case with the United States and Mexico. Mexico can't take us on, in, in many, economically, militarily, and so forth. <clears throat> We've tried to come up with reasonable water-sharing agreements, and we have been really quite successful. But as the, as the water scarcities deepen, it's going to be interesting how the power relationship plays out in terms of actual allocation and, and access to those water resources. So I think that's just part of the challenge that, that we face at home across our border, but in also other countries around the world. I wonder if you could follow up. Uh, that's an interesting. You compared U.S. Mexico and the, and the water uh, in a positive light, right? We we've forged agreements, and then you applied that to Indian Pakistan. How how would we apply that to Indian Pakistan? What would your what would your recommendations be? Some some different problems, but but the, the framework. The key, the, 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 the key issue in, in India Pakistan in the, in the Indus River Basin Agreement, all they have agreed on is who gets how much water. But they have not developed relation, um, a, a shared management regime. They don't really share information. They don't talk about growing needs. They don't talk about um, foreseeable trends. It is, it is strictly, we got so much water and you get so much. That's it. And what we have done in the, the Southwest with Mexico is a full-throated, a full-bodied engagement, a, 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 a robust exploration and engagement of communities, businesses, and municipalities on both sides of the border. That's what is so important, and that, what is, that is what is missing in so many other parts of the world, where power is determining the use of water rather than real cooperation. So the recommendation is, listen, you've got, we've got to work uh, what we call the track two diplomacy. We've got to weave into our, into our relationship with India, what's called you know, the strategic dialogue with India. We need to mature the management of water internally in India and also with Pakistan. So again, our relationship with Mexico holds a great number of lessons that can be shared and imported into those other contexts. Can you give me an example of, you're saying, you know, it's, it's, it's not if, but when the uh, 
chickens will come home to roost, my, my phrase. You know, the, the problems in other countries yeah. will, will affect our economy and affect our national security. Uh, I wonder if you could select a, you know, a, a specific example to tell me. Uh, what we're getting at is why should we in the U.S. care about uh, these other countries and their environmental problems? No, absolutely. It, it's, it's, and you know, I mean, a country like Ethiopia seems so far away. What, the, what does that have to do with us? And yet, if, if in, in 2005, 2008, one of the most severe droughts in the Horn of Africa beset Ethiopia and Somalia. So what does that have to do? Well, you know, we know about all the, the, the massacres in Darfur and that sort of stuff. But what really happened, part of the story, is that with the drought conditions, farmers, as they did in Syria, left the countryside and they went to the coast. They went to where there are urban centers. Once in the urban centers, there was not employment. There was some water, but the living conditions were very severe. The next step in trying to protect their incomes, their family well-being, was to begin what we now know as piracy in the, the Horn of Africa. Um, so I'm, I imagine some of some of your, your listeners have saw have seen um, uh, Captain Phillips, the movie, which so actually portrays the desperation of those communities. The people in that in that in, in that film from from Somalia were farmers, and then moved to the country, moved to the cities, and then became willing participants in the piracy that beset. That, you know, not only that one ship, but but literally hundreds of ships in that region. Now that's 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 one part of the story. Um, another example of why we should care is is the Amazon. Um, in 2005, Brazil experienced what was called the the, the deepest drought in in a, in a century. It was a hundred year drought. Well, you know, by 2010, they had a second. 100-year experience of drought. And in 2011, the, the, the rainfall was lower than usual, and 2012. And what we now see is, well, Sao Paulo literally is running out of water. It's the largest city in Brazil, this industrial hub of that country. It does not have water, and it's directly associated with the drying out of the Amazon. And one of the things that we have seen is, is there, there's remote sensing that actually tracks the, the robustness and the water content of trees and, and ha- what is happening to the forest. Well, the Amazon is, is drying out. Now, what does that have to do with us? That has a lot to do with soy prices. Um, when they can no longer have water to irrigate those immense fields of soy in the Pantanal and Cerrado in Brazil, it really puts a lot of pressure on the global food supply. Well, you might say, but that's good. You know, less less soy in Brazil um, means you know that the, the domestic prices are going to go up. Well, it is true in the short term, but in the long term, we also face our drought challenges here in the United States. And what that does, it puts the global food system under very serious stress. Um, and so, so these consequences, these impacts, come home to roost sooner or later. We're going to be paying the cost of those challenges, those those scarcities around the world. And we have an internal example, don't we? The drought ongoing in California. That's, I assume, going to affect food prices. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we're in the sixth year of of a very, very serious drought that that, that really besetting that country. Um, You know, over a third of the produce in this country comes from that state. 
Um, and now, well, look what's happened in Texas and your own state. Um, the very, very hard trade-offs. Your, your, your Utah has known the, the difficult debate between does the limited water supply that we have go to agriculture? Uh, does it go to tourism? Uh, does it go to domestic consumption? You've, you've faced those questions. The, the issue is that you're going to face them again, and the, the options are going to be more expensive and, and reduced options. Um, and indeed, I, you know, I, I think about the Great Salt Lake that's losing, uh, the level is dropping a foot and a half a year. And I think about the impact of the, the, the weakened snowpack uh, and what that will do, not only for your, your economy in the short term, but also for the long-term viability of agricultural and, and for the other industries really that depend on water. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, these are not problems just overseas. These are problems in our backyard now in our front yard and that we've all got to really address in a very direct way. We're talking about In Pursuit of Prosperity. That uh, is a new initiative from World Wildlife Fund. And we're talking with David Reed, Senior Policy Advisor with World Wildlife Fund, author of In Pursuit of Prosperity. We have another about five minutes left with David Reed. You're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so about five minutes left, uh, David Reed. Uh, recommendations. What are you, what are you recommending in in general? I, I, the, the overarching recommendation I have is sharing information um, and involving the citizenry in these issues. No answer to this can come simply from central federal governments. Um, on one hand, domestically, it, I, I, I think domestically, be very honest that it is the work at the municipal level. You know, that what, what Mayor Becker has done in Salt Lake City, becoming part of the Western Adaptation Alliance, uh, trying to share with the public the issues, trying to get feedback and involvement is, is, is absolutely critical to addressing these challenges in the longer term. I think overseas, which, of course, as you, as you said, you know, our, our goal is to make natural resource management much more sustainable, making that a central pillar of U.S. foreign policy. It means in t- increasing our understanding of these issues, being able to understand our prosperity, our security, really depends on the stability of what goes on in China. Now, that's a pretty, that's a big step to say our, stabi- our security depends on what goes on in China. But if, you know, there's another drought in the northern part of, of China, um, the consequences are really profound. It was that drought that helped trigger the Arab Spring. They did not. There was not enough wheat on the global wheat markets for those societies, the 40 countries that import wheat, to have access. And when people go hungry, people move, and they moved really dramatically during the Arab Spring. And you tie that back to the drought in China, to the fact that there was flooding in Canada and the U.S., that there was drought in the Ukraine. And you see that these natural resource issues really have direct consequences. Now, we repeat that again in China and India, and we are going to feel some real bite on these issues. China is, is, is constructing the largest water-moving infrastructure the world has ever known. They are going to move 17 trillion gallons of water a year from the south, from the Tibetan Plateau, north to where a lot of their agricultural um, is most fertile. Well, it, the 
moving all that water also means then that that water is not flowing southward into the Mekong and the Irrawaddy and the Brahmaputra, and that is going to then deprive people downstream in India and in Myanmar and Vietnam of the water resources that they have counted on for centuries and centuries. So you know, here again, you know, the, the, what a, a drought and a, a crisis in one country has these huge spillover effects in other parts of the world. And and I think that we we in the United States we tend to be somewhat uh, isolated from events in the world. I just don't think we can afford to do that anymore. We've really got to understand these their their stability and their prosperity has direct impacts on our prosperity and our security here at home. Just a couple minutes left. I I'm fascinated by this one bullet point. I'm I'm reading a summary of of the in pursuit of prosperity, and it uh, apparently World Wildlife Fund in the coming couple of years are, are going to pursue this on a number of different levels, including conducting a war game on global food shocks and scarcity? Absolutely right. And um, we, we, this, it's a global food security game that comes out of what is called the war game tradition. In, in a war game, this was developed by our military services after World War II. And basically they put um, opposing forces, armies, if you will, one against each other to see who will prevail and under what conditions and why the others doesn't, don't succeed. In, in a food security game, it's, it, it, the difference is that we all have the same interest. We will put into the game representatives of China, Russia, Brazil, the U.S., the European Union, Africa, we all have the same interest, but what happens is that when there's a shock and a disruption to the global food system, um, we start competing. And as happened in the Arab Spring, and when the price of wheat spiked 83%, Russia shut down its borders to the export of wheat. Well, that just exacerbates the shock to the system. And, and so what we want to do by putting leading representatives from these countries together, and I, I want to emphasize also one of the main sponsors of this endeavor is Cargill. This is a leading U.S. commodity trader, and we will bring other traders, both internationally and from the U.S., into the game to try to see how they, how the markets respond when you have these really pretty bad policy decisions made by Russia or the U.S. Or, or anywhere. So in doing the game, what we want to accomplish is to understand how these players move in a crisis. Though their interests are the same, what they do that really further disrupts the system. And then based on that understanding, begin to say, here are ways we can prevent this kind of meltdown, this kind of collapse and this disruption. So that we have a longer-term goal, and we want to we have our government involved. Um, John Podesta and Tom Daschle and others will be in this game. Um, but we also have to have leaders from other countries because we have to work together when we get to these, 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 these shocks and, and these disruptions. So that's one of the ways we're trying to respond to this, these challenges. By the way, I know you have to get going, but uh, uh, I'm, I'm just assuming that this will kind of be you know, behind the scenes, but it would be really cool to have this play out on worldwildlife.org so that's just a just putting in a plug for that well we, we certainly intend to we, we we want to have an embedded reporter we want to do um have you know videos from it we in fact we're, we're trying to craft ways of engaging the broader public in this process so people can understand you know what is happening and the consequences 
um, in, in such a, such an event. So we certainly hope to share that with you and your listeners. Great. We'll look for that. By the way, the place to go is worldwildlife.org. You can look for the in uh, Pursuit of Prosperity. That's the initiative from the World Wildlife Fund. And we've been talking with David Reed, Senior Policy Advisor with the World Wildlife Fund. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. And uh, coming up top of the hour, it's, of course, uh, the Zesty Garden with uh, Brian Earle. Hope you'll uh, join him. Um, in the meantime, we have a couple of interesting features produced by uh, UPR News. I just want to, uh, before we get on to that, to tell you about uh, some upcoming programs. Next week on Monday, we're going to treat climate change once again, this time from a religious perspective. We're talking with uh, Catherine Hayhoes, atmospheric scientist and evangelical Christian, author of A Climate for Change, Global Warming Facts for Faith-Based Decisions. Catherine Hayhoe is coming to Utah for several events. We'll also be talking with members of Utah Interfaith Power and Light, uh, religious leaders who are uh, concerned about climate change. And on Tuesday, Gary Weitzman. He's a veterinarian. And we're going to talk about serious subjects uh, relating to your pet, but also uh, some fun uh, uh, topics. He's author of How to Speak Cat and How to Speak Dog. That's coming up on Tuesday. Hope you'll stay tuned for those. In the meantime... Uh, This piece, a new study from the Utah Climate Center, is reported to have caused some controversy within the scientific community. UPR's Justin Prather spoke with the study's author, who says the findings aren't as controversial as you might think. As listeners might remember, in January, I met with Simon Wong, director of the Utah Climate Center, to discuss the difference in winter weather in the eastern and western United States. In 2014, the West set record warm temperatures and continues to experience drought conditions, while the East is still expecting heavy winter storms and record low temps going into March. Recently, Wong, in partnership with the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory and the Taiwan Normal University, published the official report detailing his findings. We are seeing an ongoing trend that, as the Western Pacific warms in, in relation to global warming, we will have this kind of unique pattern of dry west winter and cold, damp eastern winter together. That's the conclusion. The study has been regarded by media outlets as controversial within the scientific community because it links extreme climate events like the extended California drought and recent eastern abundance of snow to global warming attributed to human causes. Wong says the controversy has been trumped up by the media. And with new fields of study like his, there's always debate. It's how the scientific community works. We as scientists, we very much welcome the debate and controversy because this is really a, a new uh, study areas. It's totally fine, perfectly normal that other scientists have their own hypothesis and they, they try to disprove ours. And, you know, we welcome that. One thing that differentiates Wong's research from similar studies is that his looks at the variability or extremes of weather caused by climate change. Other studies have just looked at the average precipitation levels, which can downplay the severity of a drought or heavy storm. These studies use the same tools and models to reach their findings. They are really just analyzing their data in different ways. Wong says another issue that causes misinterpretation of climate studies is that it's hard to digest scientific data like his into a report for the general public. Identifying what affects what is not easy to understand. So the public, or let's say general news medias, they like to jump into very clear-cut conclusions. Global warming is causing California drought. But as a scientist, we cannot say that. Instead, we're saying global warming contributes to California drought intensity through this, 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 and that. And once we get to that, they lost, kind of lost attention. 
Wang was sure to point out that the warming in the Pacific is just one weather pattern that affects the nation's entire weather system. But, he says, it does have a significant impact, and monitoring it can help us peer into the future. We want to provide the best information science can provide. By identifying this pathway, we can monitor that part, give us some indication, and give you the best educated guess of what this coming winter will become. We can do that, I believe. For more information on the study from the Utah Climate Center, to hear the full conversation with Simon Wong, or to join the discussion, visit upr.org. With Utah Public Radio, I'm Justin Prather. And now on Utah Public Radio, our first installment of 52 Strong comes from us, comes to us, sorry, from Montgomery, Alabama. The week-long series follows USU professor Jason Gilmore and two of his students as they travel through the South as part of a civil rights pilgrimage. Montgomery, Alabama is contested space. On the one hand, it was considered the cradle of the Confederacy. On the other, the birthplace of the modern civil rights movement. It is the stories of courage and determination of the civil rights movement that drew us here. On the second day of our trip here, we met with Dr. Bernard Lafayette Jr., a civil rights icon and a man who has dedicated his professional life to teaching the principles of nonviolent direct action. In 1961, only a short five years after the conclusion of the bus boycotts, led by a young Martin Luther King Jr., Lafayette was one of a team of freedom riders who came to Montgomery on a Greyhound bus with the purpose of desegregating the downtown bus station. Upon arrival, the group was met with an angry mob that was waiting for them outside the Greyhound bus station. The mob started their terror by targeting a group of journalists who had congregated to report on the event, smashing their cameras to ensure that the nation and the world would not see what happened there that day. The mob then turned their anger on the Freedom Riders. True to form, the Freedom Riders did not resist with violence and were severely beaten for their actions. We talked to Lafayette about his dedication to nonviolence and how he has employed it to contest violence throughout the civil rights movement. Bernard Lafayette Jr., chairman of the board of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and distinguished senior scholar in residence at Emory University. The whole idea of, of employing the concept of love for social change that came when I was a student at the American Baptist College in Nashville, and my professor believed in a social gospel and social change. I went to school in 58, so you already had the Montgomery bus boycott. So we talked a lot about Martin Luther King, and then we talked about Mahatma Gandhi. and So it started making sense to me when I saw that even the force of love could be used in social action and social change. I always thought it was two separate things. Once, uh, for example, I was, uh, we were on a demonstration at a movie theater, and we would uh, go and seek to buy a ticket at the booth, and we refused, and we would go to the back of the line and just continue to go around in circles. And then when the demonstration was over, we'd all get together and walk back to the church, be at night. We were bringing up the rear of the march. So we would walk backwards, in other words, because many times the people who were hostile towards us would come to the, and pull people off the rear of the march and beat them up. So as we were walking backwards, this fellow came up and he spat on Jim Lawson. The guy was next to me. So 
Jim Lawson immediately said, oh, do you have a handkerchief? That's who's asking the guy who spat on him. And the guy reached in the back, and he had one of these great big handkerchiefs and handed it to him. And Jim wiped himself off and said, here, and the guy had on a, a black leather jacket, okay, and boots and stuff like that. And he said, what do you ride? He said, hot rod. He said, really? He said, what kind is it? You know, They got into a conversation about the hot rod and how many horsepower it had and all that. And this guy was so excited to tell him about because he was excited about his bike. He walked all the way up to the church where we were, and all of a sudden he looked up and he saw the church, and he said, oh, I got to go now. I'm sorry. We could talk later, you know. But the fact that Jim Lawson asked him for a handkerchief, that's what started. He had confidence. So this nonviolence is not just a more powerful way, it's a more desirable way. And it was consistent with the concept of love. You can follow the 52 Strong Pilgrimage at upr.org. They're also on Facebook and Instagram with the hashtag USU Civil Rights. And programming this morning on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread and Logan, open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m., offering a selection of French pastries and a variety of sweet and savory menu items. Details at crumbbrothers.com. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, learn how Elizabeth Randall Cumming came to Salt Lake in 1858 as the wife of Utah's first non-Mormon territorial governor. Her expectations of the journey were defied every step of the way. First this. I'm Cynthia Buckingham, director of the Utah Humanities Council. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. UHC is proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories as part of our statewide tour of the Smithsonian Exhibition, Journey Stories. Tune in each week for a new Utah Journey Story from the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Believing the Mormons were in rebellion in the late 1850s, the U.S. government sent army troops to Utah, both to monitor the population and to provide a military escort for Alfred Cumming, an Easterner appointed as the new territorial governor. Cummings' wife Elizabeth would be Utah's new first lady. While waiting for Alfred's orders to travel, Elizabeth made plans to set up housekeeping at their new post. Relying on newspaper accounts of the situation in the Utah Territory, Elizabeth was as skeptical of the Mormons as they were of her and her husband. As she prepared to say goodbye to Boston, Elizabeth knew that she was leaving not only her physical home, but the only society and people she knew. As she crossed the country, Elizabeth began to form her own conclusions about the journey west. She found the passage less difficult than advertised and wrote to her sister that sensational newspaper accounts of traveling west had some striking discrepancies from her own experience. Reaching the Utah Territory in April 1858, Elizabeth waited at Fort Bridger while Alfred went to Salt Lake City to claim his leadership and demand recognition from the Mormons. The Cummings expected that Alfred might be imprisoned upon arrival, but he received a peaceful reception, and Elizabeth soon joined him. During her four years in Utah, Elizabeth reported positively about her experiences. She was accepted into Mormon society and had many conversations with women about polygamy. Despite her personal aversion to local customs, Elizabeth wrote that the peculiarities of the Mormons were their own business, not mine, and was impressed by the women's avid expressions of faith. Elizabeth helped with her husband's official duties and gained the respect of the Mormon community. 
Her writings about Utah and its people in the 1850s provide a unique glimpse into how one woman established herself in a new land and among a new people. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by Heidi Tuck. Sources and past episodes may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. So here you are listening to your favorite public radio program on Utah Public Radio. Well, this time we'd like to hear from you. You can share your thoughts, your ideas about Utah Public Radio now and about the future of public radio by going to our website and taking our survey. It just takes five to ten minutes. You can find it online at upr.org and you can tell us which programs you enjoy and perhaps those you would rather not hear. And comment in general about what you value about the service UPR provides as your local public radio station. You can take the survey by going to upr.org and thank you. When Queen Mary II died in 1694, Henry Purcell wrote music for the funeral. In 1992, American composer Stephen Stuckey gave it a 20th century spin. Coming up, the Boston Symphony at Carnegie Hall playing a 20th century take on a 17th century classic on the next Performance Today from APM. Thursday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. Thank you for listening to Access Utah this morning on Utah Public Radio. Stay tuned next for Zesty Garden with your host, Brian Earle, followed by Performance Today at 11 and Exploring Music at 1. Time now is 10 o'clock.